John 16, found in page 902 in your pew Bible, if you're following along. John 16, 5 through 15. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of God. Thanks, Alexa. Almost every time I meet a guest that comes here to Trinity, and some of you have probably experienced this before, I ask them how they heard about us and if they live in the area and if they have any friends at the church that brought them into the church. But inevitably, the conversation almost always turns to, and so what do you do? What do you do for a living? What is your calling or what is your passion? Well, if the Holy Spirit strolled in into this room this morning, and you were meeting him for the first time, you might ask him how he heard about Trinity. Hopefully he'd say, oh, I heard about him from the Father. Um, pretty good church. Um, then, he might ask, then you might ask him where he came from. You'd find out he's not all that local. Then you might ask him, what do you do? Now, there are a bunch of ways that the Spirit could answer this question, what do you do? But I think it's quite possible he might just grab one of those pew Bibles that are right in front of you there and say, you know, turn to John 16, today's text. This isn't my exhaustive resume, but it's a fair representation of a large part of what I do, a large part of my job. It's hard to imagine a more confusing and uh, divisive subject than the Holy Spirit, the subject of the Holy Spirit. If you were to YouTube the work of the Holy Spirit, you'd see a whole range of straight-up... Uh, interesting behavior, and a lot of it gets blamed on the Holy Spirit. Holy laughter, holy howling, holy barking, I saw that this week, just to name a few. How do we know whether or not that behavior is from the Holy Spirit? We laugh, but, but how do we know? Maybe you've assumed that to be filled with the Spirit is to spend your day with supernatural impulses and feelings. Maybe even like mystical whispers, something like while you're driving, you might hear a voice say, turn left, turn right, drive two blocks, stop the car, go into Yum Yum Donuts, <laughs> buy a dozen white lightnings, get back into your car, drive to Abington, to 2731 Susquehanna Road, <laughs> drop them off there, something spooky like that. Then you've got folks that are on the other side. They have a different kind of behavior. They're like, no thanks, I don't want any part of that. 
So they swing to the other end of the spectrum, basically act as if the Holy Spirit isn't even a person of the Trinity. They end up like functional binatarians rather than Trinitarians. They're down with the Father and the Son, but they have no idea what to do or what to make of the Spirit. They sort of lop him off of their Christian experience. They act as if they could go on without the Spirit and be just fine. Sure, their doctrinal statement addresses the Holy Spirit, but their lives don't reflect much of his influence in their lives. We want to avoid both extremes and be as thoroughly biblical as we possibly can. We need clarity. So if you've wondered who exactly the Holy Spirit is and what he does, you're in the right spot. So let's jump back into what's going on in John's gospel as a sort of on-ramp here. We're sort of jumping onto a treadmill that's been rolling for quite a while here as Jesus finishes the last few moments of his life. Even as he's chatting with his disciples in John 16 that Alexa just read for us, even as he's chatting with them, he's still just a few hours away from a trial that will lead to a violent execution. He'll be dead by tomorrow. So he's throwing out his final instructions for his 11 closest friends for what to do when he's gone. So he and his disciples have left the upper room where that famous Last Supper that you've heard of and that we've studied for the last few weeks was hosted, and now they're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to ultimately be arrested. And as they've been walking and talking, he's been dropping some pretty grim truth bombs into their lap. He says, they've hated me, and they're going to hate you guys too. It's going to get real bad. You see that in verses 1 to 4. And so in order to endure that suffering that's just around the bend, they're going to need help. So Jesus is revealing all of this to them, not to frighten them, but to actually prepare them, to put the tools in their hands to know what to do so that they know what's coming and where to turn when those things actually come. Miriam used to do this for babysitters when our girls were younger. She'd write a note to the sitter about what to expect and what to do in certain scenarios. Here's what they need to be fed and when. Here's where the diapers are. Here's where the wipes are. Here's where the earplugs are. Here's all the stuff that you're going to need while we're gone. Those kids are precious to us, and we want to make sure that they are well taken care of in our absence. In much the same way, Jesus' mission is precious to him, and he wants to let them know, and he wants to let us know that we're going to be well taken care of in his absence. So that's what Jesus is doing here in this text today, preparing these guys for his departure by giving them instructions for what's to come. Look there in verse 4. Jesus says, I didn't say these things, these really hard things, from the beginning. Why? Because I was with you. I was your advocate. I was your defender. But now what? What are they going to do without his protection and without him educating them on what is true and what is good? Well, Jesus empathizes with these guys. He really does. He knows what he's done to their emotional states here. So he's like in verses 6 to 7, look, I know this is some sad news, but let me tell you something really amazing. I'm leaving, but I'm sending someone in my stead. I'm sending a helper. And get this. It's actually better for you guys if I leave. Wait, what? 
Let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a second. Ask yourself the question, which would be better, to be with Jesus or to be with the Spirit? Which one would you want more? And yet Jesus insists here that it's better to be alive now after he's left and the Spirit has come. He says it's better to be alive now after Jesus has left and the Spirit has come. That is rich for us to take in and and, and really just mull over. We should believe Jesus when he says this. This should put to rest some of the feelings I bet some of us have had. I know I've had them. Oh, if I'd just been alive when Jesus was alive and walked the streets of Galilee, I know I'd be so full of faith and so full of fruit. On the one hand, you've got God dwelling in the flesh, dwelling with a few of us in a limited body for a limited amount of time. That's Jesus. Or God in the Spirit, who isn't confined by a human body, but is free to indwell and empower each of us and each of Jesus' followers all at once. Which one would you want? Well, if you're anything like me, it's actually both. Could I have, could I have both of those, please? Jesus with me and the Spirit in me at the same time. I want both. Some commercials from our childhood solidify themselves deeply within our brains. I don't know if you have any of those. One of those for me was this Pizza Hut commercial that was featuring Deion Sanders. Does anybody, does this ring a bell with anybody? Pizza Hut, Deion Sanders? All right, you got the Cowboys fan over here, no wonder. (laughs) If you're unfamiliar with Deion Sanders, he played both professional baseball and professional football during the same seasons. So the punchline throughout the commercial was the Dallas Cowboys owner offering him two really great either-or type options, and Dion constantly saying both. He wanted both. So what's it going to be, Dion? Football or baseball? Both. What's it going to be, Dion? Offense or defense? Both. What's it going to be, Dion? Stuffed crusts or meat lovers? Remember, it was Pizza Hut. Both. What's it going to be, Dion? 15 or 20 million? Both. But we've got Jesus telling us here that both isn't better for us right now. But that it's better for him to go and the Spirit to come. How can this be? How can this be? Well, the thing is, the helper couldn't come until Jesus was done with what he came to do. It's not that the Spirit and Jesus can't be in the same room together at the same time like Superman and Clark Kent. That's not what's going on here. Because that will be reality for all of eternity in the life to come. There's something else that's going on here. You can track with it there in verse 7. He says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for, I, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the order of things here has everything to do with the promises of the new covenant laid out for us progressively over the course of the old covenant, the Old Testament, before Jesus ever came. In 2 Samuel, and in Ezekiel, and in Jeremiah, God promises that only when the Messiah is enthroned, only when the Messiah is enthroned, that is the time when he will pour out, pour out his spirit and begin bringing about his kingdom on the earth. And so then this spirit would do in them and for them what they'd never ever be able to do on their own, change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, enabling joyful obedience from us, not just rote obedience but joyful obedience. Only when the Messiah was enthroned would that happen. Well, how would the Messiah be enthroned? How would he climb up onto that throne? Well, Jesus, the Messiah, could not be crowned king until he had died, 
risen and been exalted to the Father's right hand. That's what had to happen first before the Spirit came. And so this is why Jesus can say this with a straight face. Hey, it's good for you that I'm leaving because I'm going to inaugurate this new kingdom and it's going to flip the world upside down. I'm going to die that you might live. I'm going to reign that you might flourish. And unless I do this, you won't get access to this new helper. You don't get the help. So this is the context and how the Spirit came when he did. And for the rest of our time together this morning, I just want to teach us a brief little lesson on who the Holy Spirit is and on some of what he does, really rooted here right in John 16. What what was this new help going to do and who exactly is he? So, who is the Holy Spirit? First thing that we see here in John 16 is that he is a person. We need to notice that the Holy Spirit is a unique person and not simply a power or some kind of mystical influence. He is spoken of as he, not as an it, there in verse 7. I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not merely a force or a power. As a person, he knows us. He speaks to us. He leads us, he strengthens us, he changes us. This is important because I think we tend to neuter the Holy Spirit out of personhood, but that's not an accurate portrayal of how the scriptures describe him. We have to understand that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is actually a person. He's a personal being that will interact relationally with you. He's a person, he's also God. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. Now, this is tricky. This is really tricky, especially if you're brand new to Christianity. And to be honest, it's tricky even if you're not brand new to Christianity. Here's the truth about the God of the Christian Bible. There is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods. There is one God. This is a mystery. But what kind of God would God be if he could simply be contained in our little boxes? One guy I read recently said this, if God never confuses you, troubles you, or disagrees with you, then you're not staring at transcendence, you're staring in the mirror. In theological terms, we say that he is both co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. Everything that is true about the Father's nature and the Son's nature is also true about the Spirit's nature. That's not to say that their roles are the same, but that they are the same in nature. And I want to demonstrate this for you by comparing Isaiah 6 and Acts 28 for us. Isaiah 6, 8, 9 says this, and look at that underlined portion and just tuck that in the back of your mind. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say this to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now we're going to skip ahead to the New Testament many, many, many years later into Acts 28. In disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. So who is it that gets credit for these words in Isaiah 6? In Isaiah 6, we read, The benign, the Lord, was saying it, if you can track back to the underlying words there in Isaiah 6. But then in Acts 28, the camera focuses in a little bit more clearly and unveils for us who exactly it was 
that made this statement? Which member of the Godhead said this? Acts 28 says it's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a person, he is God, and he is your advocate. You can see that there in verse 7. In its technical form, the word helper there has a legal dimension to it. It refers to an advocate. You, could, you might be able to read the word counselor into the context here, but not like a camp counselor, not like a marriage counselor, but like a legal counselor, an advocate. In other words, the Spirit is your advocate. He's your defense attorney from the righteous judgment of God. I think it's pretty interesting that the Spirit is on both sides of the aisle here in John 16. He's both your advocate, your, your defense attorney, if you are in Christ, but then he heads over to the other side of the courtroom to be the world's prosecuting attorney. Do you see it there in verse 8? He convicts the world of sin and judgment. So at the very least here in John 16, we find that the Spirit is a person, he is God, and he's an advocate. He's your helper. Now what is his job? What is the job of the Holy Spirit, at least according to John 16? First, it's to be a really present help for you. As we mentioned before, Jesus mentioned that it was to our advantage that he leave and go to the Father. That's because of his own self-imposed human limitations. He couldn't be everywhere at once, but the Spirit could and is all over the world indwelling and empowering those of us who are in Christ. That's one of the main advantages for Christ's departure and the Spirit's coming. The Spirit's job in your life is to be a present help right there for you in living out your mission with and for Jesus. If you're unaware of or not pursuing the help of the Holy Spirit in your daily walk with Jesus, you're not as fruitful as you could or should be. Pursue the Spirit's help. You cannot do what God has called you to do effectively, fruitfully, and enduringly without the Spirit. You cannot work. You cannot parent. You cannot worship. You cannot serve the way that you are called to as effectively as you could without the help of the Spirit. The Spirit is a real, present, relational, personal help for you. And as our present help, here's what he, the Spirit, is here for. He's here to convict the world. So we've been given this message by God. Be like him, enjoy him, and tell others about him so that they can be saved. But here's the problem. None of us can do the work, the actual work necessary to actually save souls. We can throw the life rope out, but none of us has what it takes to pull it all the way back. We can't. That's why Jesus sent the Spirit, to convict the world of sin. The idea of this word sin, if you're sort of new to Christianity or new to the church or you're just exploring Christianity, this word sin, you may have heard it described or maybe you haven't heard it described as missing the mark. So think of it like an archer. If the only goal of an archer is to hit dead on on the bullseye, then whether, whether he's a millimeter off or hitting the neighbor's cat accidentally off target, both of those fall short of the perfection that he is aiming for. That's what sin is missing the bullseye. No matter how close you are, you've still fallen short of God's perfect or God's perfection. So it doesn't matter how moral you are. 
if the morality of your life lands on the target and just off or way off target, you're still guilty of missing the mark that God has called you to hit. Anything less than perfection will be judged by the righteous God. We want our judges in society to act like this too. We don't want them to let people off who are guilty. The same with our God. He will not let us off, even if we're just a smidge off. But you and I don't have a hope of convincing the world of this. We can't actually convict them of sin. They're not convicted on their own, and neither were we before the Spirit gave us life. They're not convicted that there's a holy God and that they've missed the mark of his perfection and beauty. We can't do the convicting. Only the Spirit of God can do the convicting. Only the Spirit can convince all those opposed to God that they've sinned against God, that they need the righteousness from God through Christ or or also suffer under the judgment of God. We can't convince anyone of that. And those are the three things that the Spirit convicts the world of. In verse 8, look at it. And when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and judgment. Sin. The Spirit is what convinces the heart that it has sinned against the Holy God, ultimately through unbelief. Righteousness. It is the Spirit that shows us our righteousness is not enough. No matter how much good we do, it is not enough because it falls so far off the mark of the standard of Jesus. If you're not, think about this, if you're not as righteous as Jesus was, you're not getting into heaven. For those of us who are believers, it was the Spirit who convinced us of that. Sin, righteousness, and then judgment. This last piece is like a domino effect. The Spirit convicts us of our sin. He tells us that our righteousness is not enough, and and the result is that we fall under God's righteous wrath. With our sinful choices, we've dug a hole that is simply too deep to get out of on our own. This is a lot of doom and gloom this morning. That's why Jesus sent the helper. He has someone who can dig us out of the hole. We need help. Jonathan Edwards once compared our efforts to subdue God's judgment to a spider web trying to stop a boulder rolling down a hill. It's just not going to happen. It's impossible to avoid God's judgment without God's helper. It's impossible to avoid God's judgment without God's helper. So have you ever just sensed in your spirit that you are not enough? You do not have what it takes to be what you need to be for everyone in your life. That even when you try hard to love your kids, you still get angry. That even when you really want to get up early, days on end, and fellowship with Jesus, you just keep failing. That even when you want to have a heart for the poor and the marginalized, you often end up spending your time and money on things that are just more convenient for you. While those feelings are frustrating, they're the one thing in this life that actually might prove to be life-giving to you. Because you've become aware, by the Spirit's help, that you've fallen short and you need help. You need a sort of holy depression to sink in so that you can discover your holy helper. If you've ever felt like less than enough, you can thank the Spirit for that. But the Spirit wouldn't want you to stay there thinking that you were less than enough. Well, he would want you to continue thinking that you were less than enough. He would want want you to know that there is a help for those of us who know that we are less than enough. The Spirit is your advocate. 
You would want to redirect your gaze off of yourself, off of your sin, off of your lack of righteousness. When you're tempted to despair, the Spirit would want you to look up and see Him there who made an end of all your sin, who was fully righteous in your place, who Himself suffered under the just wrath of God that we might be free of judgment. That's what the Spirit's role is in your life. If that isn't your story, if you don't know this to be true about you, if you haven't believed this good news, I'd encourage you, I'd urge you to believe it today. It's a simple free gift from God that can give you life in this life and the next. But for those of us in here who would claim to have believed that news, I can think of three quick applications for us here. First, thank the Spirit. Second, rest in the Spirit. Third, be humbled by the Spirit. So first, thank the Spirit. Have you ever felt those those pangs of guilt and shame because you've broken God's law. Do you know where those feelings come from? Have you ever like, tried to source them? They come from the Holy Spirit. If you're broken up about failing to show the love of God, you can thank the Holy Spirit because now you know you've fallen short. Now you know you've fallen short and you need the help of Christ. That's a gift from the Spirit. But even beyond thanking Him, We should rest in him. The fact that it's the Spirit's job description, it's in his job description, not in mine, not in yours. It's in his job description to convict the world of sin. This relieves all the pressure from us. This was so life-giving to me this week. It's our job to just tell them the good news, not to make the world believe us. Let the Spirit do his work. It's our joy and privilege to share the life-giving news of Jesus, but knowing the actual convicting convincing work is the Spirit's work, relieves us of having to make our Christianity super cool or gimmicky or compelling to humanity. Nah, you stay in your lane and let the Spirit roll down his lane. And just a quick confession, this morning, even as I was preparing to preach that very thing, I was living to the contrary. I was just talking with Miriam about this sermon and I, I told her, I just feel like something is missing from it. And maybe, she wasn't, maybe I wasn't wrong, I don't know. But I was feeling pretty down about it. And she, like a good, godly woman would do, looked me straight in the eyes and was basically like, yo, do you, do you hear yourself? It's the Spirit's work to do the convicting in that room when you preach today, you dummy. Trust the Spirit and not the turn of a phrase. Man, my heart is like, it's so prone to trust in how I craft a sentence than into the spirit who crafted this book. We need to trust the spirit to do the convicting work in the world. We're all prone to try to manipulate the results that we want and miss out on the cosmic power of the Holy Spirit. Rest in the spirit. Thank him. Rest in him. And then third, be humbled by him. The spirit isn't an add-on. The Spirit isn't take it or leave it. The Spirit isn't just the third wheel of the Trinity. He's not the spooky thing that just keeps, that the church keeps on the shelf in a doctrinal statement. No, the Spirit is actually the lifeblood of the church. Without the Spirit, the church would never grow. The millions upon millions that are coming to faith in the obscure parts of the world right now, and even right here in Abington, They would never be convicted of their sin and their need for Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Be humble, Trinity. It is the Spirit that is doing this through his convicting work. 
Well, how does the Spirit do his convicting work? He does it by clarifying the truth. That's the next thing we see here. He clarifies the truth. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Notice what the Spirit gives to the disciples here. He doesn't give them urges. He doesn't give them impressions, not feelings. He gives them the words of truth. This is what we call our doctrine of revelation or our doctrine of inspiration, that God breathed out through his Spirit the Scriptures. The Father spoke the words of truth, objective words of truth, the truth, John 16 says. He spoke them to the Son, and the Son gave them to the Spirit, and the Spirit gave them to Jesus' first disciples. And then the disciples wrote them down, and this is how we get the Word of God. Life-giving, soul-transforming, eternity-saving words in this book right here. Thanks to the clarifying work of the Spirit, who would work in the disciples to write down the truth of this book. So the Spirit handed down the words of God to the Scripture writers, but His work, believe it or not, this clarifying work continues into today. Look, anyone, if they're literate, can pick up a copy of the Bible and read it on their own. But without the Spirit's help, they will not be able to understand the depth and riches of what they read. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians 2. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirits, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are a folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the spirit is your only hope of finding perspective a truth perspective in the fog of war that we've been thrown into as Christians in this world. You and me, we need the Spirit so bad. Believe that this morning. I mean, you've scrolled through social media, you've flipped on the news, you've talked with coworkers. Knowing right from wrong is totally up for grabs right now. What's up? What's down? This thing that was once celebrated is now condemned. This thing that was once condemned is now celebrated. Who's right? Who knows? How, how can we know? You need a truth perspective, and your only reliable source for that truth is brought by the Spirit through these words that he inspired so long ago. Press in, Trinity. The Spirit is God's gift to you so that you can know exactly what is good and right. And finally this morning, on the job description, what does he do? The Spirit points to Christ. Do you see that the Spirit is not clamoring to be in the driver's seat here in John 16? Or even to ride shotgun with the Father? He's convenient. He's convenient. He is content to take the back seat. Though fully God, his aim is to glorify Jesus. Look there at verse 14. This takes the pressure of all, uh, off of us too, I think. We don't need to impress in public spaces and force our way into being noticed. Not if the Spirit is content to quietly do His work in such a way that makes much of Jesus. Shouldn't we too be content with this very thing that the Spirit is content with? To aim the glory at the Son. If, if the work of the Holy Spirit that you're observing on YouTube or in another church or even privately in your own life doesn't have as its aim the glory of Christ, it's not actually the Holy Spirit. That is the metric. 
the Holy Spirit of the Christian scriptures has a laser focus on the glory of the Christ. And he works that same impulse into all of his people. Why do we never get tired here at Trinity of gospel, 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 gospel? Why do we always return back to it? Because the Spirit doesn't get tired of it. And by God's grace, the Spirit is training our impulses here at Trinity, and hopefully in you, to be utterly focused on Jesus the Christ and his gospel. A minute ago, I mentioned those notes that we used to write for our babysitters. We don't write notes anymore. Our kids are old enough to give their own instructions to the babysitters. And they're shrewd enough to take advantage of this situation. (laughs) Babysitters don't know that we don't have dessert on weeknights, only on weekends. Babysitters don't know that bedtime is 8.30 and not 9. Babysitters don't know the six million other rules in our home. Their babysitters play games endlessly with them. Thank you, Rachel Craven. They get candy and cake. Thank you, uh, Jane and Steve, for that. And walks to the park, Isaac and Natalie, and all the glorious things that are a little less prevalent when mom and dad are around. There are just some advantages to mommy and daddy going away for a little while. Our kids love babysitters. They recognize in so many ways that it is to their advantage that mom and dad go away and the sitter has come. There are perks available that just aren't present when we're around. Trinity, in God's providence, the Spirit offers gifts and strengths that Jesus doesn't. And it's in God's good providence that this is the way it goes. It is good for us to long to see Jesus in the next life. But until then, just know that it is good that he went to do what he did, to rescue us. And it is good that the Spirit is here with us in the meantime. So pursue the Spirit as your present helper. Ask the Spirit to help you discern the truth of God from the lies of the world. Ask the Spirit to unveil the Scriptures to you when you sit down to read them tomorrow morning. Ask the Spirit to make much of Christ in you and through you. Will you pray with me? Spirit of God, forgive us for when we've forgotten about you. But thank you that you're training us to focus on Jesus. I pray that we would become more and more aware of your presence in our life, that we would be more and more dogged in our pursuit of your presence in our life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for breathing life into us. In Jesus' name, amen.